Amen. Amen. Well, good evening, church. Good to see you guys tonight. It's actually good to be up front here and not give announcements and greetings because when I come up to give announcements and greetings, you guys know what I'm going to say most of the time. But tonight you have no idea what I'm going to say. So I count that as a win for me. But we're back in Acts, so turn to Acts chapter 6 if you would, and that's where we're going to continue on this evening. I'm going to warn you, though, that this message is going to sound uh, a lot like a continuation of where we've been the last four weeks on pastoral care, and you'll understand why that is as we travel along, but I just want to give you a a warning up front. Um, I don't typically title my sermons, uh, at least not, not with titles that I communicate to the church. I'll give some sort of a title just to have something at the top of the page. And Sam has in our preaching document titles for all the sermons, but they're not, you know, they're not meant to be necessarily specific titles that we have to, to follow or be creative with. But for some reason, for this message, I felt compelled to share the title uh, of this particular sermon. Um, in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. And, and that title is this, Beyond the Conflict. Beyond the Conflict. So for you note takers, uh, you, can, you can write that in your notes. Why that title? Well, uh, what we see in today's text um, is an inside look at a specific conflict in the first century church. And it's a growing church. And we're going to look specifically at this conflict, and we're going to draw out gospel principles and gospel truths that we can live out in our own church context here at Red Tree. But there's more to our text than even that today, than just the conflict alone. What is beyond the conflict? It has more to do with the intrinsic nature and the essential constitution of why, as Christians, we even exist and how the early church actually came into existence. And our church, for that matter, as well, Red Tree Church. So if you're willing to travel with me down this road tonight, we're going to discover exactly what is beyond the conflict as we read in chapter 6 of Acts. I'm going to begin today's message, um, or or as I read, I'm going to read in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 41, where we left off the last time we preached out of this book back in December. So let me read this passage, and then I will pray for our time, and we'll get into it. Beginning in chapter 5, in verse 41, Luke tells us this. He says, when they left the presence of the council, the apostles, They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In our text today, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. 
And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochurus, and Nicanor, and Philip, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. And we ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and till up the the soil of our hearts to receive it so that we would love you more deeply, God, and love those around us as Christ has loved us and sacrificed his life for us. So we thank you for this in his name. Amen. In the opening pages and really throughout the whole book of Acts, we read about the establishment of the early church, and it's a growing church, as I've said. Now, most of your Bibles, like mine, probably has the Acts of the Apostles titled just that, Acts of the Apostles. But we know, and we've talked about this, we know that a more accurate description is Acts of the Holy Spirit. And the reason is because the church is created by God, not the other way around. To be more specific, so we live in a day and in an age of charismatic leaders and gifted communicators and amazing worship. Because of technology, we are more and more in tune with that because with a click of a button, we can experience that. And that's not a bad thing. But when you combine that with our human tendency to expect excellence in everything that we experience, in everything that we consume, because really... In our heart of hearts, we're consumers, for good or for bad. And when you combine the plethora of information and worship and communicator and different churches that we can experience with our tendency to consume, it's easy for us. It's easy for us to become enamored with the human element of church life and not the spirit of church life. Or to become dissatisfied with it. Those are the two roads that we can go down. So we have to remember and we have to recenter ourselves that it is God who creates his church. And it is God who sustains his church, not the other way around. Seems like a simple thing to have to say, but I know I have to be reminded of that in my own life constantly. You see, the reformers had a phrase for the church. They said that the church was a creature of the word. Now, for some of you, that may be a familiar term. For others, maybe you haven't heard that before. So let that sink in. A creature of the word. The church is a creature of the word. What does that mean, that the church is a creature of the word? Well, I think a good analogy is this idea of a distributary. You guys are familiar with with a river term of a distributary or a tributary, perhaps. Uh, If you've ever heard of the uh, the Atchafalala River. It's a river that flows in central Louisiana. And it's a river that empties ultimately into the Gulf of Mexico. And it produces significant resources for that region, significant income, and allows it to flourish in that region down there around New Orleans. It's a very productive river in that sense. 
But for as scenic as that river is, as productive as that river is, and as important as that river is to the economy down there, it owes all of its strength, power, and influence to something else. And do you know what that is? It's the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River. The Atchafalaya River is a distributary. Now that's opposite of a tributary. So a, a distributary doesn't have its own water source as opposed to the Missouri River that has its own water source and it empties in to the Missouri or to the Mississippi River or feeds the Mississippi. When the Mississippi is high, the Atchafalaya is high. And when the Mississippi is low, that river is low. And what the Atchafalaya River accomplishes, whatever value comes from that river, is wholly dependent on something other than itself. Does that sound familiar? The church is like the Atchafalaya River, or it should be like the Atchafalaya River. Whatever the church accomplishes, whatever value comes from the church is always tied to its source. Our source is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not to go into a lot of detail or a lot of history, but that's what happened with Red Tree Church. The gospel began to be preached and taught and received and obeyed and grew among a people. And ultimately, a church grew out of that preaching, teaching, and obedience to the word of God. The gospel is our Mississippi River. We are, as a church and as a people, creatures of the word. And this is the book of Acts. Like the Mississippi overflows and causes the influence of the Atchafalaya to increase, the gospel overflows and causes the influence of the church to grow, both inward individually, but even more importantly, outward as the collective family of God. And so as we read the book of Acts, and in the early verses, and in fact, in chapter 1, the first 14 verses, after being crucified, Jesus presents himself to the apostles, to the disciples, as a resurrected body, very much alive. For some 40 days, he appears to his people, and he's speaking to them about the the kingdom of God. And he tells them after these 40 days, he says, I'm going to leave, and I want you to stay here for now in Jerusalem because my Holy Spirit will come, and he's going to provide you with the power that you need to be my faithful witness not only here in Jerusalem, but outward to the rest of the world. And Jesus then miraculously ascends into heaven. One of the things that I really appreciate about Sam's leadership uh, regarding um, how we preach and how we understand and how we understand Scripture, both both in in preaching and, and studying it, is his constant drumbeat of putting ourselves in a first century mindset. He does that really, really well. He always crafts a story that really tries to get our minds and our hearts into the frame of of what's going on in that that first early church context, regardless of what, what, uh, what book we're preaching out of, or if it's in the Old Testament. I've often heard people say in the past that they would love to know what it was like to be in that first century church, to experience that. We think, if, if only my church experience was like the first church, if only my experience was like the book of Acts, where I could experience sharing like they share, and I could see God move, and I could see miracles, it sure would be a whole lot easier to have faith. 
I wouldn't have any doubts. I'd be able to live out my faith a lot better. We say those things. And as people, we want to know what it's like to be that first century church. But, But how often do we put ourselves in a posture to be with them? For instance, after Jesus ascends, the disciples retreat to an upper room. And they are they're waiting there, and they're devoting themselves to what? They're devoting themselves to prayer. They're obedient to Scripture. How often do we do that? If we want to be like the first century church, how often are we willing to do what Psalm 37 tells us? To be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. It's a perfect example and a perfect opportunity to be like the first century church. This is what they did. And as they did, things began to blow up. Life began to explode in good ways and in very challenging ways as well. Pentecost happened. People who were tentatively following Jesus were no longer hindered, and they began to boldly follow Jesus because they were now possessed by the Holy Spirit. And things got messy, and things got crazy, and folks were speaking in tongues. Peter stands up. Peter, doubting Peter, denying Peter, preaches a spirit-filled gospel where thousands of people are saved in a single day. The lame and the sick are healed. There's unity, unlike any unity known. It says there's no needy person among any of them in this church, and selfishness is called out, and pride is called out in frightening ways. The story of Ananias and Sapphira come to mind. Christians are beaten and they're jailed for their faith and their response isn't to whine. Their response isn't to complain. Their response isn't to blame shift. They rejoice. They rejoice in the Lord to be counted worthy to suffer in his name. There is an ever-growing and deep devotion to the gospel teaching that fuels fellowship and love for one another and a growing affection for Jesus to make him known. This was the tenor of the early church that we say we want to be like. All of this was the natural overflow of the gospel that was rooted in their hearts and working in their hearts and growing outwards because they were dependent, utterly dependent on the source, the gospel. It was rooted in their hearts. Just like the Atchafalaya River depends on the Mississippi River, they could endure anything that came their way, and they did. As individual lives were transformed and as they wrapped their lives around Jesus, the gospel called them into something much bigger because the gospel isn't just individual and cosmic. And it is cosmic because the dead are literally brought to life. It's also deeply corporate, and that's family. And that family is simultaneously awesome and messy. Need I tell any of us that? It's a glorious mess. You guys remember Freddie Williams. Some of you guys remember Freddie Williams. He used to be a, a pastor that was part of our church. Freddie's in Denver now. He used to, people would ask him how his church was. He said, it's a glorious mess. It's a glorious mess, and, and that's exactly true. That puts the finger right on Glorious because God spoke the church into existence and messy because it's full of sinners. In our text today, it's an honest account of the messiness of church life. 
But what leads up to this context, or this conflict, and what guides them through it, and what lies beyond the conflict is profoundly important. It's vital, and it is of intrinsic worth to us. This conflict cannot be handled that we read about in a manner in which it was handled without this fundamental reality, and that is this, the consistent presence and the submission to the Word of God, the preaching and the teaching of the Gospels. So those are the waters we're swimming in. That's the context that is happening in these first five chapters on into the sixth of Acts. So let's, let's talk about what's going on in this passage with a clear understanding of what created this context in the first place. This, this passage is more than just learning about best practices of church administration or resourcing or mobilizing resources. It's more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. The scene we read about today, I believe, is an overflow of what Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says so well when it says, So we, though many, are one body and individually members one of another. In our text today, the church continues to grow. And when the church continues to grow, inevitably problems are going to occur. And so we read in our text today about two groups of people, two groups of Jews in our story that we read about today. One group is, is, is Hebrew-speaking Jews, or more, more accurately, probably Aramaic-speaking Jews, and Greek-speaking Jews called the Hellenists. Now here's the distinction between the two. When the, when the Jews were dispersed after their captivity, some of them landed closer to Jerusalem. And so they quite naturally would have maintained the cultural and the linguistic roots in and around Jerusalem and from their Jewish faith. But when the Jews were dispersed after their captivity, there were some that were scattered among the Gentiles. And these Jews would have adopted the culture and the language of their surroundings, and that was the Greek culture and the Greek language. If you've ever heard the phrase Hellenist, like it says here, or to Hellenize, it actually means to adopt Greek culture and ideas. So both of these groups were Jewish. Both of these groups had people who had been saved and they were part of the church and followers of Jesus Christ. And both of them had widows, as talked about in our text today. And and we know, we know what God's heart is for the widows. We know what God's heart is for the orphans and for the people that are disenfranchised and hurting. We read that in James chapter 1, verse 27, specifically about the widows. Now, the Hebrew Jews kind of prided themselves on the fact that they had always lived in the land of the patriarchs, and they always maintained the language, and they were near the temple to worship regularly. And the Hellenist Jews probably at times got a little jealous of that because they were from another part of the world, and... They were most likely at times felt, felt like outsiders or made to be felt like outsiders. And so there was this built-in tension that existed. And, and the thing about tension like this is it doesn't just vanish when God saves us. We've all had that experience. We, we don't just, tension doesn't just go away. Conflict doesn't just go away. The ultimate conflict goes away. The conflict that matters in our heart, the enmity between us and God goes away. But that's still lived out in our lives through sanctification on how that works with other people. So there's this built-in tension. And there's a bold statement in Acts chapter 4 that says not a, there wasn't a needy person among this church. Well, chapter 6 would challenge that statement. 
Does this mean they were hypocrites? I don't think so. I think it means they're human. It means that their church, like our church, is messy and prone to not function as it's meant to from time to time. Just like you and just like me, for them, sanctification is hard, isn't it? It's a difficult thing. It's messy and it's ugly and it's hard. And this presented a wonderful opportunity for the gospel to make its way in and to bear fruit in the lives of these disciples. And so what we see here is we see an example of godly wisdom and Christian unity as they work through this dispute. The apostles, the leaders of this church, recognize this for what it is. It's an opportunity for pastoral care, just like we've been talking about for four weeks. But it's It's an opportunity for pastoral care to be applied with a one-another ministry. And that should sound familiar, as I said, because of the last four weeks. So, So the leaders of this church, they gathered the church together, kind of a members meeting, and they told the church, they said, you're the solution to this problem. You are the church. You are the solution to this. And they said, We want you to find us seven wise and spirit-filled men, and we will appoint them to handle this important pastoral care of duty, duty of care. But you guys need to help solve this. And that's what happened. They identified those seven men. The apostles prayed over them. They laid their hands on them, which which was merely a symbolic act of of affirming and recognizing those gifts that the people had, had said that they had and experienced, and they sent them off to care for the widows. And the result was not only care for the widows, that's not the end of the story, but lives continued to be transformed by the gospel, and the church continued to grow. And that's the end of the story. That's it. That's all that's going on right here. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty clear. It's pretty practical when you get down to it. What then is beyond this conflict? Well, I think there's two particular points of application for us today. And I think the first one is really an exhortation to all of us. And when I say all of us, I mean to to those that are leaders that anyone who stands up here and preaches the gospel, so typically you're seeing me or Sam, Mike, and Jesse up here preaching the word of God, leading, we are your elders, we are your pastors, we are your shepherds. It is an exhortation to us, and it is an exhortation to you as well, the members, those who've tied their heart to our church. And if you haven't, if you haven't tied or linked your heart to our church and you're just visiting or checking us out, this is, this is for you as well. And here it is. As we serve Christ... We do so in a broken world, and there will be messes to clean up as we follow him. Newsflash, right? That's not new to any of us. It's it's not a, a revolutionary thought. Here is what's a revolutionary thought. And here's what I think we need to hear. That we can face these difficult realities with grace toward one another and with confidence that Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, remember, is building His church through the power of the gospel in spite of our imperfections. May I repeat that? We can face the difficult realities of our church life and of our life with grace towards one another, and with confidence that Jesus, who is the Word made flesh, is building His church through the power of the gospel 
in spite of our imperfections. In fact, he uses our imperfections. So why would we want to hide them? Why would we want to hide our imperfections when Christ wants to use them in one another's lives? We are members one of another. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. Sometimes those messes are big. And sometimes those messes are small. Sometimes we all see them and experience them and are hurt by them collectively. And often they only affect a few of us or or an individual. And and Red Tree has encountered both the last few years. And that's even pre-pandemic. It's been a difficult couple years for our church before 2020 happened. But as we know from last week's sermon, Sam mentioned from 1 Corinthians, when one of us hurts, we all hurt. And I believe that even when we're not aware of the pain, we hurt. The Spirit works in us in a way that even when our brothers and sisters don't tell us what's going on in their lives, we still experience that hurt and that pain. Maybe even in more profound ways because we're not quite understanding what's going on. And don't take that as, as a as, as, um, license to hide and, and to not let people know what's going on. It's quite the opposite. We need to be letting people know what's going on so we can love one another and serve one another. Verse 1 says that the Hellenists were complaining. They were grumbling. And we've all done that. Paul says in several places in the New Testament that believers are not to grumble. But we do. We do. We're all human. I need the exhortation. I don't know about you, but I need the exhortation to not grumble against my brothers and sisters. Or our leaders. Or my fellow elders. I need that exhortation. Now when there's something to complain about, something to grumble about, it's usually legitimate. There's usually a kernel of truth in there. In Acts chapter 6, this was born out of an issue of injustice. There were widows not getting enough food. There was an, there was a, a, an, an unequal distribution of food. This was a big deal. But rather than complaining, they should have brought their concern to their leaders with a confidence that they would have resolved, that they would resolve this conflict. Our leaders in in our church have experienced it here. And and it's wonderful when we do, when someone presents us with something that's going on that needs to be attended, and they come to us and they say, hey, did you know about this? It's a beautiful thing to be able to to be enlightened in that way. Because even with a small church and with four elders, we can't know what's going on in everybody's lives. We have to rely on you, on one another. But as leaders, we also must remember that sometimes people in our church are going, to, are going to complain. They're going to grumble. Sometimes valid, validly so. Sometimes not. But as your leaders, as your shepherds, we should not dismiss your concern just because of the delivery. Nor should we dismiss one another's complaints because of the delivery. This is messy business. And as Sam also said last week, I believe it was, that we should be quick to give one another the benefit of the doubt. So that, that's the first point. That's an exhortation to both leaders and, and people in our church as we work our way through 
church life in the book of Acts. The second point of application from this passage is to answer the question, why is pastoral care important? Now, I would hope that you would know the answer to that question because we just came out of this four-week series on pastoral care. We love one another and we care for one another because Jesus loves us. Right? He has brought us together as a family to love and to care for one another, and the effects of that love ultimately are to be seen by a lost world who will come to know Jesus because of the love we have for one another. That's mission. In fact, that's Jesus' family mission. We, we cannot get away from that. That's not just a tricky catchphrase that we use, Jesus' family mission. We believe in that. That's why you hear me say it when I give the greetings and announcements. That's why Sam said it today. We say it in a little different way, but that is the essence of the rhythms of our life, is Jesus' family mission. And I think this gets to the heart of this passage. The point of this passage isn't simply that a conflict arose and that it was addressed. Verse 5 says that the apostles or what the, what the apostles said in response, in other words, the way they handled this complaint, it says that, that pleased the whole gathering. That, that original language, the Greek uh, for the word pleased, gives the sense of reconciliation or peace. It's unity. Pastoral care, one anothering, unifies the church with a goal to increase the mission of God. In other words, pastoral care is initiated with the gospel. Pastoral care is sustained by the gospel, and pastoral care results in the continued preaching of the gospel. Notice in verse 2, the apostles said that it's not right that we should give up our preaching, or we should not give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Rather, let us find some men to do this work. So we can devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They weren't shirking responsibilities. It wasn't that they didn't want to serve or didn't have a heart to serve. They were looking at the biblical priority as leaders to preach the gospel, to devote themselves to prayer. That was beyond this conflict. Then in verse 7, as a result of the appointment of these seven men to address this conflict, so the apostles could continue to preach and to pray, it says this, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly, so much so that even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What does that mean? Well, one commentator said that there most likely could have been as many as 8,000 priests, priests in Jerusalem around that time. And in Acts chapter 4, it says that the priests, or at least some of them, were greatly annoyed because of the preaching of the gospel. So this didn't look like a group that was ripe for harvest. But here's the thing. The consistently preached gospel will have its effect, even on the hardest of hearts. God's word will not return void. That is why it all comes back to the centrality of the gospel, the good news. That is why we will, we will, that's why we are gospel-centered. That's why we believe so much in the good news because it transforms every facet of our lives. 
I want to draw your attention to the two uses of the word increase. In verse 7, it says that the word of God continued to increase. Now, the meaning of, of the word increase there in the Greek simply means that the word began to circulate more and have its effect. But notice in verse 1, Luke says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. That's a different Greek word. It means a little bit of the same thing, but it means to undergo a change. To undergo a change. That's what increase means in verse 1. Scripture, one way that the Word of God is described as a scalpel, isn't it? It reaches into our lives. It's living. It's active. It pierces our hearts. It lays bare our deepest motives and our deepest intentions. We can think we're hiding, but the Word of God pierces that. And it stirs us up. And it draws us to confession and repentance in Jesus Christ. And the gospel was having an influence on the hearts of those who believed. Hebrews 4 says that no creature is hidden from God's sight. That's a scary thought. No creature is hidden from God's sight. We are all naked and exposed to the eyes of God. And one day we will give an account. So our takeaway today is not simply the administration of care in the church only. It's not just the practical elements. It's what initiated that care. It's what sustained that care. And it's ultimately what results in that care. And here's what I think we need to wrestle with today, each one of us. And this is, this is kind, of, uh, kind of heading down the funnel of, of leading up to response time. So in just a little bit, I'll call the band up. But, but for now, here's what I think we need to wrestle with. Is the Word of God transforming your life? Is the Word of God transforming the situations and the relationships and the circumstances of your life? which is to ask a follow-up question. Are you listening to God? Are you paying attention to God? That's one of the reasons we have journals back there. I hope you're using them if you've already grabbed one. To be able to, to read the Word, to highlight the Word, to write down what God is saying, even if you're not in the practice of that, that's why we have those. If you haven't engaged that, and, you, you, and you're just, this is not your thing, I would, just, I would ask you to try it. And just see, and you'd be amazed at what God can do and how he can speak to you. But are you listening to God? Is your heart open to change? You can say you want to change, but you have to be open to change. Is the taking in, the digesting of the word of God a regular part of your spiritual diet? You can't be changed if it's not. You're just going to be doing this by the sweat of your brow, and it will be frustrating And it will be mind-bogglingly frustrating. And you will continue to struggle and continue to hurt. Are you a creature of the word? What we read in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7, is a church that was a result of being a creature of the word. In, In the very first week of our pastoral care series, the text was Ephesians 4, the first 16 verses. And in that chapter... Uh, or that chapter 4, begins with the word therefore. You may remember uh, Sam made this cheesy little statement, but really is not cheesy. He said, what's the therefore, therefore? 
And it makes us reflect and look back on what came before chapter 4, which is chapters 1, 2, and 3. These chapters describe the reality of what the gospel creates and who we are in Christ if you're a believer. If I were to summarize those three chapters, I would say it this way. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Listen, here's what Paul says. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But listen to this. But God, in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our struggle, Jesus is there for us. He continues to be. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we didn't have to reach a certain level or bar for God to save us, even when we were dead in our sin and trespasses, incapable of responding to Him, not wanting to respond He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Church, this is the reality that's beyond the conflict. This is the reality that compels the conflict to be addressed and sustains them in the midst of the conflict. And this is what is on the other side of the conflict. It is the gospel and it is the good news. This is the gospel that heals us. This is the gospel that nurtures and creates hearts in people who are pleased to live fruitful, unified lives that allow for the continued preaching of the gospel to see then more hearts changed. Our passage today was a gospel-fueled decision and implementation. These seven men that we read about were filled with the spirits. They once had hard hearts, but their, their hard hearts were saturated and changed by the love of Christ and transformed into compassionate hearts that were willing to be used by God in the local church. That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for me. We don't do it perfectly, and that's fine. That's the point, too. That's fine. We don't, we're not looking for perfection because we serve a perfect Savior. We don't have to be perfect. We can, we can exist in the messiness of church, right? We, we, can, we, can, we can endure what, what people, people who are different than we are, that we wouldn't naturally hang around. That's, that's the unifying nature of the gospel. We rub shoulders with people we wouldn't dream of hanging out with. But it's beautiful when it happens. That's what we want. Two of these men, Stephen and Philip, went on to preach the gospel. And they were instrumental figures in the church, as we're going to be reading very soon. You may not be called to preach the gospel like they did. But church, I know that God's heart for you is to know him deeply. And for your heart to be transformed. I know that's God's, that's God's um, plan for you and desire for you to transform your heart for the situations and the circumstances of your difficult and messy life to be transformed. 
and for your relationships to be transformed. Here's the promise of God. To be clear, it's not the removal of those problems. God is not going to just take those problems away. His promise is that he is with you in them. Jesus was called Emmanuel, God with us in the middle of your mess. I don't care what sin you're involved in. In the middle of that sin, Jesus is there beckoning you to say, I took that on me. Lay it on me. I took that burden. He wants to redeem that. He wants to reclaim you. That's what God is doing. He's redeeming these situations. And he wants to be with you in that. And so does your church. That's what being a part of a church is. It's not what we do tonight or Sunday mornings. We'll get back there one day. That's not the sum total of church. That's a response. We get to come together and respond to what God has been doing in our lives and how we've been messing up, but we've been confessing and we've been with each other the other six days of the week. We come to church to celebrate that. And sometimes just to be, just to sit and let the word wash over us and let worship wash over us and let people pray over us so that we could avail ourselves of the power of the spirit that is working in us. And sometimes it doesn't feel like the spirit is working. I know that. But the word of God is clear. This is the heart of God. He is redeeming. He is renewing. He is transforming. That's what he does. And he continues to do that through and in the church by the power of the gospel. Ben, you guys can come ahead and come on up. As we close out tonight, Chris and the band is going to come up and, and they're going to they're play a little bit. And I just want you to reflect on this. I want you to reflect on what we've talked about tonight. Are, are you, we all need to change. We're all in the process of transforming. We are, are, we're all being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so we all have something to deal with in our hearts, something to deal with in our lives with God. What is that for you? Humbly submit that to the Lord. So I'm going to pray for, for us, and the band's going to play quietly, and I just want you to reflect for a few minutes on that, and then we're going to sing a song together, and then I'll come back up, and, and I'll lead us in communion after that. Lord, we are, um, we are word, words can't describe what we really are, Lord, because we just on some levels we just can't believe it. We can't understand it. But your word is clear that your heart for us is to redeem and to transform, that the gospel is the source, that yes, there are conflicts, but it is, it is in the, the, the essence of those conflicts that the gospel resides. And the good news allows us to, to get through those conflicts and to resolve them in a way that, that heals wounded people and serves needy people, but that also then continues the gospel of, to go forth, for the good news to be preached, to be lived out, to be experienced by the very people who are hurt and who are wounded so that others can see that's what this looks like. That's what it is to believe in this Jesus that people talk about. It's not just a list of rules. It's not just a list of, of do's and don'ts. It's a transformed life that is a process. And there are people in a local church called Red Tree that want to love and care for you and be in it with you along with Jesus. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, may that grow in each of our hearts. 
whether we are a leader, whether we are a member of this church, whether we are a visitor for the first time, whether somebody's checking us out online tonight or, or maybe a year from now. Because your spirit is in this, Lord, it can, it can have the effects. It can bear fruit because the gospel is that powerful. It's not dependent on my voice. It's depending on your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the gospel. Change us. Give us willing hearts 